Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by Dr. Veronica Hendrick of the City University of New York. Her paper was entitled Testimony of an Irish Slave Girl, Indentured Servants and the Influence of Cromwell. Uh, the book that I'm talking about actually comes, uh, the, the fiction that I'm talking about actually comes um, heavily based from research on some other works of history that were um, spe- specifically talking about indentured servitude. And so I'll begin with that. Shauna Callahan's book, To, to Hell or Barbados, the Ethnic Cleansing of Ireland details the problematic situation faced by the natives of Ireland under the rule of Cromwell. Quote, after the execution of Charles I and the ending of the monarchy, a new republic was established with Oliver Cromwell as the first president of its Council of State. End quote. And his main concern was the fear that the people of Ireland would unite against, would unite and regain their position and move towards the invasion of, of England. Cromwell stated prior to leaving for Ireland that if we do not endeavor to make good our interests there, and that timely, we shall not only have our interests rooted out there, but they, the Irish, will in very short time come to the land to come, will be able to land forces in England and put us to trouble here. By 1649, Cromwell fully believed that an Irish attack on England was imminent and accepted his nomination by the Council of State to command English troops for a preventative attack against the Irish. The devastation under Cromwell's attack, as well as the commanders of other forces, was twofold. The death of thousands in battle and the destruction of land and its people in its aftermath. What concerns me here is the aftermath and the way that literature portrays Cromwell's laws as they influence the exportation of people, some from the homes and some from their nation. An act was passed in 1652 named the Act of Good Affection, which classified various Irish citizens according to their guilt during the rebellion of 1641. Depending on their level of participation in the rebellion, various punishments were assessed, death, transportation, and exportation being the sentence for the majority of the accused. And those that were not transported by May 1st of 1654 were to be hanged. This final clause of this act stated that even those who had not participated um, directly were defined as guilty because they did not act against the rebellion. Ultimately, this led to the wholesale clearance of the richest and most fertile lands, which were then given to the English settlers. Vast quantities of men were given to English settlers. Uh, Vast quantities of men were sent to foreign lands to serve in the armies of their allies, leaving women and children bereft of both support and protection. Others were sent to serve directly on the plantations in various settlements, places like Virginia and Barbados. Whether or not these particular people who were sent to do these um, in, in this capacity were considered servants or slaves is something that's debated in various circles. There's really, um, it's very unclear which it is. And so for the purposes of this paper, I'm going to go with the idea that they were indentured servants, although that is a forced indenture, right? So um, the reason I'm doing that is because the book that I'm looking at calls this, the um, the woman, an indentured servant, and so it makes a little bit more sense there. But I do think there's a very good case that these people were, in fact, slaves. Um, and the difference, of course, being that one contract can end, whereas the other one is perpetuity. So, 
So the book that I'm looking at is by Kate McCaffrey. It was written in 2002, and it's called The Testimony of an Irish Slave Girl. And so although she used that term, the woman is actually indentured. Um, and it begins by detailing the plight of a fictional character by the name of Cot Daly, who was kidnapped into service. Spiriters were people who kidnapped children. Um, they were employed by merchants or ship captains. And these uh, kidnappers mainly operated in London in the seaport towns of Bristol and Liverpool. Uh, we have one spiriter who boasted that one year he had sold an average of 500 children a year, and that he had done this over a period of 12 years. Another individual claimed that he had captured and sold about 850 children in a single year. So two things that made the position of both women and children problematic was the direct result of the exportation of the men from the country. As I said earlier, they were destitute of any kind of protection, and their families were often uh, left very, you know, destitute. People um, who were on parish relief were then denied support as part of the policies that came through, and they were forced to sign indentures, or the other option was to just simply starve. And again, we have to remember these are vast quantities of people who were suffering in this fashion. Um, other people were, specifically women, were deemed indigent, and they were captured in the sweeps. So although this is not precisely the situation faced by Cot Daly, she nonetheless is transported to Barbados during this period. Through her narrative, Cot, the main character, details her young life, first in Ireland and then as an indentured servant in Barbados. Although not ideal, her childhood in Ireland was that of a respectable underclass family. Unfortunately, one winter's day, while caroling with other children from her village, Cot was swept up with one of the nets of Oliver Cromwell's men and they were sent to Ireland, sorry, the men who were sent to Ireland to cleanse the country of natives, refusing to relinquish their land. This policy created an Irish slave trade where captives were transported to Barbados, and this is where that term to be Barbadosed came from, and sold there as indentured servants. The sweeps of Ireland extended beyond the deportation of political prisoners and dissidents and moved to random opportunistic capture of unprotected men, women, and children. Cott was one of these children who was sold to British planters in the island. The number of Irish who were Barbados is unknown, and the estimates for it vary widely. One estimate reaches as high as 60,000 to a lower estimate of 12,000. However, once on the island of Barbados, what we do know is that the Irish intermingled with the African slaves, and they joined with them in the slave revolts that happened on the island. <clears throat> The reason that, uh, that the story that Cot shares with us is called a testimony is because of her involvement in one of these revolts, and she's actually been um, arrested and imprisoned, and she's being interrogated. And so that's the title of the text. And her tale, as she goes through it, beyond talking about the rebellion, speaks to the idea of the um, life of an indentured, and really she suffers uh, one of the most horrific examples of indentured. It's um, perhaps a bit over the top in terms of the description, although historians do see some of the similarities or do point out some of the similar atrocities that she talks about. And those are the ones that I'll be focusing on here for the rest of the paper. <clears throat> so, as an abducted child, Cot was bereft of all familial or support, social support, and she had no legal recourse whatsoever. Her predicament was generated by a twofold problem. The first, respected, um, the first aspect relates to her captivity itself. The fact that she was stolen, spirited away, rather than being legally indentured, was something that she could not prove. She had no recourse whatsoever. Her claim to freedom was either disregarded 
or unheard. She held no papers whatsoever to prove her free status as an Irish citizen, since there were no such things um, at that time. So in keeping with this lack of evidence, Cott's captivity was compounded by the fact that she was a young girl, very young girl, from a lower class family. Her father would have had limited resources, and it's unusual that she actually has her entire family who are working and maintaining a, a relatively good life during this period. But her father would have had limited resources, both economic and political, to devote to her rescue. Similarly, her youth, her class, and her gender would have made her an uninteresting focus for the legal magistrates. Right? The power of Cromwell and the soldiers who acted in his name made her plight dismissible for any magistrate who actually was interested in her. So in order to fight on her behalf, any lawyer would have, had, would have requested appropriate compensation for the inherent risk in pursuing the issue. Moving against the British was a dangerous and only significant incentive would have propelled a member of the legal community to act against the Crown. And Cott's father clearly did not have enough coin to create such an initiative. Um, therefore, once Cott was captured, she was utterly lost to both her father and her homeland. She became fully ensconced in the role of an indentured servant, removed from the limited legal protections provided by Irish citizenship, this fictional account reflected historical information, such as that cited by Robert West, who noted that the British agenda to send Irish children, sorry, Irish Catholic children into, quote, slavery in the West Indies, Virginia, and New England, so they might lose their faith and all knowledge of their nationality, end quote, and the 30,000 Irish adults who were sold into slavery irrespective of their previous social status. In the midst of this tumultuous period, a young child such as Cot would have vanished without comment by the larger community that had been decimated by the actions of Cromwell's troops. Once entangled in the servant system, Cot was confronted by multiple situations and individuals who represented the cruelest types of masters. These individuals were concerned with the profit that could be made by a servant's labor rather than any type of even exchange proffered by the indentured servant contract. So what we do know is that, in some cases, the indentured servant contract was a viable uh, means of exchange, similar to an apprenticeship. But when we get to what's going on here to the people who were Barbados and sent to the islands, that seemed to have been off the table, and it was just a very aggressive um, workforce that was um, used. So McCaffrey, in her portrayal of Cott's la life, took great pain to explicate the very variety of ways that the way, sorry, the variety of ways in which an indentured servant could be used and misused. One of the most salient points that McCaffrey makes throughout the narrative was the liquid nature of contracts, unlike their implied codification. According to the laws governing indentured, there were legitimate ways in which a contract could be extended. And these conditions often focused on events where a servant had done something egregious. Um, they had somehow ruptured the agreement, and they could have um, the contract owner could get some kind of compensation for this. Typical events which would garner extended work time were generated by a servant's inability to work. Um, extended periods, periods of illness or for women pregnancy could add years of compensation to a worker's time. Another issue, though, that becomes increasingly more common on the island was the extension of contracts as punishment for running away or hindering production. And so as the slave revolts are going forward, this becomes a way in which you know, contracts become more often extended. So if a servant ran, 
the courts would consider various factors when they extended the contract and the servant time to reimburse the owner for the runaway's absence. These costs would be adjudicated by the local courts, which were completely biased and against all of the Irish that were being imported at the time. Factors beyond the labor costs would also be, act, would be factored into the time extension. These costs included things about tracking, apprehending the runaway, jail costs, or any other legal fees that came with the case. These justifiable extensions were, also, were often misapplied to servants who were completely innocent. They had just to be accused, brought before the court, and their contracts were extended. Um, and this is a situation that was confronted by Cott as she moves through several mercenary owners of her contract. The terms of her servitude were repeatedly extended, her contract being either sold or rewritten or unjustly extended through false accusations of bad behavior. When McCaffrey's novel opens, we have the adult Cott reflecting back upon 29 years that she spent in service and the events which brought her to the legal system that now are forcing her confession. And so what you have to remember when we're looking at 29 years of service, she was originally most likely contracted for seven. That would be the standard form of an indentured servant's contract. Children sometimes had longer contracts because they were slightly burdensome, they weren't that productive, and so they might have a nine or even an 11 year, depending on their, their youth, if they were a five-year-old. You know, you'd have to feed them for a couple years before you got your labor out of them. Right? With Kat, she comes in and she has um, worked her contract, and it, by the time we have her at the end talking of the book, she's reflecting back on 29 years of service. And so the rest of the story tells how it got to be so horrible. At the time, she's being tended um, because she's been beaten um, to get her confession, and she is um, feverish, and she's being attended to by the apothecary, who's also taking down her testimony. Um, interestingly, the, the doctor's name is Coot, which is also one of the, okay, so right, there we go. Um, so Cot weaves a chaotic tale, reflecting back to the vagaries of her life. In her testimony, a rambling affair, broken up by bouts of fever and collapse, she cites various different laws and legal situations, specifically a proclamation of 1657. This proclamation, in her words, describes the Irish on the island of Barbados, quote, as slothful, dissolute, lewd, evil, and pilfering, quote, end quote, and grants the ability for any constable to whip any Irish servant suspected of counterfeiting a master's permission ticket to walk the streets. She noted that many runaways could be flogged and that their service lengthened between two years and double just for walking around without a pass. And so you can see what's going to happen to her, and she gets caught in a couple of these traps. Um, it is the... Hold on one second. I'm just make sure I didn't skip a page. Okay, it was due to this particular proclamation that con contract was first unfairly extended. And again, we're remembering that the contract itself was unfair. She should never have been, you know... Uh, made an indenture to begin with. So her first extension is unfair. It goes beyond its um, legal terms because of this kind of um, malfeasance. The second time that she gets her contract extended comes in response to her getting really drunk at a party on Easter Sunday. And the party was supposed to go with no limit. And what ends up happening is overseer is looking in. They're having too much fun. And he's a little annoyed with us. And he shuts it down. She, in a drunken rage, tries to beat him. She doesn't even get near him. She just kind of passes out in the process. Nonetheless, she's scooped up and punished for that. Um, citing the Act for the Ordinance of Rights between Masters and Servants, Cott, in her testimony, explains that she was not only lashed for her bad behavior, 
um, but two more years of service were added to her contract at that time. And really, this is a minor offense because, as I said, she couldn't even get to the guy. So although the punishment for her attempted violence was warranted by the system, I mean, there should have been some kind of you know, act there, the voluminous extension of her service time was not. And so we have the addition of two more years, including increasing her debt, which at that point had been diminished, um, almost, double, almost doubling it at that point. So each episode in Cott's rendition focuses on the corruption of the system, which irrevo irrevocably bound her. And her standard seven-year contract had been incrementally extended 22 years beyond its initial parameters. And all of these years added were either based on exaggerated reactions um, to her behavior or, their, or these false charges. Only the closing acts of her life, her participation in a slave rebellion, merited the punishments exacted earlier. In fact, in one early instance, before any of this um, had happened, before she had been transported, she had actually reported an insurrection that she heard about on the plantation. She told her master that there was going to be an insurrection, and all of the slaves were punished. And she, instead of getting any kind of reward, which is what she was after, she was trying to work the system to her advantage, she gets punished with everybody else, contract time extended. And then she's sold. And also, right before she's sold, the other servants or slaves are, are really after her for having done um, exposing them. So she sold off the, the plantation at that point. And after a grueling life of drudgery, abuse, and perpetual loss, she gives up all hope. Uh, by this point, even though she's been drunk at the party before, she now becomes a committed drinker. She's making bootleg wine. She gets caught for that. Um, and she becomes to be a rebel. So she's been accused of it several times before. And she's put in this final situation where she just, um, you know, all hope is lost. She's, at this point, a, a, even though she's young, she's an old woman already. And so the final uh, point for her is that towards the end of her life, she's lost some children from previous unions. They've either died or they've been removed. And now Cod has been placed in a union with an African slave, and the clear purpose is for her to have children. Right? She's completely unhappy with this idea. Um, she's, yeah, surprise. Um, she's unhappy with her situation, and she's horrified because she's now going to be the third wife of a non-white, non-Christian man. Not that she's overly religious. She's um, not doing so well in that quadrant either. But as she gets invested in the situation, she eventually becomes connected to this non-traditional family. She's a complete outsider. She doesn't speak their language. The other women, of course, don't like her. We find out there's all kinds of things going on there. But she um, ends up having children with her husband, and they develop a, a form of affection. It's not a love affair, exactly. But she becomes emotionally linked to her husband, and she eventually gets accepted by his wives. Turns out one of the women that he's married is actually his own sister, and it's not an incestuous thing. What he's done is he's married her to protect her, um, and they try to figure out how they can actually get her pregnant without him being the father, but um, Cot's the one who figures this out. Um, she's, she gets another man to uh, perform the services. Um, all right, so through her birth of her children, she becomes emotionally linked to her husband, gets accepted by that, and ultimately she becomes entrusted with all the facts that they know, and there's this massive slave rebellion brewing on the island, and it's really being generated by the African slaves. They far outnumber everybody else to this point, and they have access to things um, coming in through the ships. So she becomes aware of this brewing slave revolt, and she enlists herself. Um, she, as a white woman, has some power to get places that the African slaves cannot, and she becomes both a messenger and she starts carrying arms. 
One of the things about um, McCaffrey's book in Testament of an Irish Slave Girl is, is McCaffrey does a good research job with the history. And so she clearly is looking at the, the book that I cited in the beginning, Heller Barbados, to get some of her facts. And she's right about the, the slave rebellion. So the rebellion happens in 1650, sorry, 1675, and it's the second major slave rebellion in Barbados. Um, the plot's been up and organized for three years, and it's really only caught the week before it happens because one of the slaves um, betrays the rest. Um, turns out that this woman was infatuated with her owner and tries to do something much like Cot had done earlier. She exposes the plot, and the island has um, it's just in chaos for a bit. Um, and Cot's role is caught. So her role in the revolt is paralleled. Um, and and so she, she basically um, gets caught in this position between both servant and slave. And like the servants and slaves found guilty of the actual resurrection, insurrection, her sentence was death. So at no point in her testimony does Cot try to hide her position. She's actually using it to talk about the plot um, she's using it to um, work against people who are about to kill her. She's not trying to prevent it. She knows there's no escape. And so although her confession is coerced through the ministrations of the apothecary, um, it becomes abundantly clear that Cot had turned the situation to her own advantage, if not to her own purpose. Her, aud her audience, the prejudging, condescending Dr. Coote, has given her an avenue to describe the destruction of her life. And Cott knew that her testimony would be read only for the information regarding the plot, and so she took the opportunity to continually interrupt herself and move into these side stories and describe and, um, sorry, to describe and explore the reasons for her rebellion. Using both the details of the slaves' lives and the ways in which her own life had unraveled under the indentured servant system, Cott condemned the legal structures that allowed these abuses. Her conclusions pained, painted the masters in unredemptive terms, which precluded all possibility that the system could ever foster an equitable exchange. The corruption of law presented in this novel portrays the plight of the indentured servants, particularly the vulnerable position of women due to the British laws imposed upon the Irish during the period that we're discussing. Thank you.